Thank you again for all your many blessings to us. In your name, amen. Thank you, Corla. Um, now, Jean, I assume you have a scripture for us. Uh, yes, I have a scripture. All right. Um, Bethel, would you be willing to unmute yourself and read the scripture? Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are of God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, to be ministers of a new covenant, not of letter, but of spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death, chiseled in letters on stone tablets, came in glory so that the people of Israel could not gaze at Moses' face because of the glory of his face, a glory now set aside, how much more will the ministry of the Spirit come in glory? Since then, we have such a hope. We act with great boldness, not like Moses, who put a veil over his face to keep the people of Israel from gazing at the glory that was being set aside. But their minds were hardened. Indeed, to this very day, when they hear the reading of the Old Covenant, that same veil is still there, since only in Christ is it set aside. Indeed, to this very day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their minds. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And all of us, with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. Wow, this is long. By contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patient, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit. Let us not become, let us not become conceited, competing against one another and being one another. Okay, this is going to be a little different than I usually do. In fact, quite a bit different. I'm not going to give you a presentation. Instead, what I have are 12 questions for discussion. Um, and I'm going to go through the questions, all of them. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> I can't show them all on the screen at once. Uh, but we'll, we'll take them three at a time. And uh, I'll go through them first, and then we'll... Uh, start with the first three. Does allowing the Holy Spirit, this is number one, access to our minds while attempting to interpret the Bible or any portion of it 
deprive us of our freedom to interpret it as we see as best. Number two, to what extent does the Holy Spirit's guidance as we study scripture affect the outcome of our interpretation of scriptural passages or the interpretation of the scriptural passages we've studied? To what extent does the Spirit remove the veil Paul speaks about? If we pray, number three, asking for the Holy Spirit's guidance as we read or study the Bible, does this mean that everything we think about what we read comes from the Holy Spirit. And there's a story. It was a long story. A student in an Asian college that I taught in for three years was converted as a result of a week of prayer in which the week of prayer speaker was really extolling God answering prayers, no matter how foolish those prayers were and no matter how foolishly you acted. So if you jumped off a cliff, God would save you from death or injury uh, miraculously if you asked him to. Um, this was the tenor of his week of prayer. And these were some, that was an actual statement that he made that God would, would answer your prayers uh, even if you did something really foolish. Well, this student uh, accepted this whole thing and became a Christian. I don't think she had been a Christian before. And one day, she and her friend came to me uh, and told me that she had been hearing God speak to her audibly, telling her to do various things. And recently, he had spoken audibly to her while she was sitting in church and told her to marry the youth pastor who was single. She wanted to know, and her friend wanted to know, if I thought this was from God. So I gave them a Bible study briefly on how to test the spirits um, and suggested that if this was from God, God would inform the youth pastor. So they went away a little disappointed at what I said. And um, I decided to ask the youth pastor to see me. I, in those days, I was pretty audacious. <laughs> so I asked the youth pastor to see me. And uh, I asked him if, if it was his choice to marry her, because by this time he had agreed to marry her. And he said, well, no, really, she pushed me really hard. And, and I finally came to believe that it was from God. And so I talked to him about the tests of the Spirit and asked him if he didn't think that if God wanted him to marry her, that God would tell him, not just her. And by the end of our time together, he had decided he was going to really pray about this and think about it again. The next thing I knew, uh, they had broken up, and later... They each married someone else and seemed to be very happy with their choice. Um, but what the outcome of this story was that the student who had accompanied her to see me told me is that she was really surprised that this wasn't automatically from God. And she was really surprised that if she studied the Bible and asked the Holy Spirit to guide her that every thought she thought during the time she studied the Bible 
was from the Holy Spirit. So that's why I asked that question. Number four, if the entire SDA church decided to prayerfully ask the Holy Spirit to guide our minds when studying the Bible regarding the role of women in the church, how would this affect the results? Would we ultimately experience the same interpretation? Number five, how did early Adventists deal with differences of interpretation of Scripture? Number six, when we talk about the Holy Spirit, which is rare in our church, why do we usually avoid Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 3.17? Actually, that should be 2 Corinthians 3.17. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Seventh-day Adventists have long taught that there are several key texts that we use to test the spirits. But nowhere that I know of has the church stipulated 2 Corinthians 3.17, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom as a test to determine whether an individual or group of individuals has the true spirit. Why do you think this is? How would using this verse as a test of the work of the Holy Spirit change our church? How would it change the way we deal with conflicts of interpretation? How does the Holy Spirit work on our minds so as to allow us freedom? Number 10, could we develop and use too rigid a method of interpretation that could restrain the work of the Holy Spirit on our minds and in our midst? How can we avoid that? Number 11, what allowed our American forefathers to choose to become the first governance structure to rest on individual civil and religious freedom and to separate church from state? To what extent did scripture influence them in this direction? What method of interpretation or hermeneutic? did they use? So there are the questions. I wish I could see you while I'm behind the screen. It makes it awkward. Um, I would like to go through most of these questions at least, especially the ones regarding freedom. So I'm going to ask you for what you would like to do. Uh, would you like to look at these three uh, or maybe pick a, one or two of the three? Uh, what would you like to do? Uh, after hearing all your questions, I personally wanted to know what you thought it meant, what you thought 2 Corinthians 3.17 meant. What does it mean that where the Spirit is, there is freedom in, in terms of Bible interpretation? I feel like that's where you're going. And once we heard that, I think we might be able to think about um, okay. How that jives with our experience? Why the, does the church? What would happen if the church used? I don't know if that's a good idea. Anyone else is certainly. I see Bruce and Janet have unmuted. Let's hear what they have to say. Well, I'd be interested in more context regarding the Second Corinthians three seventeen. Okay, um, this has to do with the veil that less leaves uh, is over their minds every time they hear the old covenant, uh, which I think Paul's meaning the Ten Commandments. And so they have no freedom because they have a hard heart and they don't allow the spirit access. And I take that in principle farther that in addition to not allowing the Holy Spirit access, they don't allow anyone else freedom either. So it in, has in to the do... the present world we live in, the word freedom is slippery. Yeah. Like, I want to be allowed the freedom to 
breathe on everybody else, even though it might make them sick. And mm -hmm. so on. Oh, Bruce. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you recognize sarcasm. I did. Uh, Dick Osborne has unmuted himself. So, Gene, um, do you differentiate the, the, the Trinity uh, more discreetly as the Holy Spirit being different than praying to God as the Father or to Jesus? Because a lot of our prayers are, dear Jesus or dear God, we rarely pray, dear Holy Spirit. How do you, are you differentiating between those? Uh, or when we pray in any of those ways, is that basically an invocation for the Holy Spirit to respond? I, I, I guess the way I do it is I ask God to enlighten my mind through the Holy Spirit. I, I sometimes pray to the Holy Spirit, but um, I, see it, I, I see them as all working together anyway, and so you talk to one and you're talking to all three. <laughs> Vicki? Well... When I hear the word freedom to interpret, and I think of it in the terms of the separation of church and state, that's because, you know, I mean, what that seems to imply is that different people will interpret things in different ways, and no one person has a right to tell somebody else that theirs is wrong, uh, or at least to say it with any kind of, of um, consequences. <laughs> Um, but on the other hand, one was in Steve Waters' math class, and you had the freedom to interpret as you saw best, and you had multiple interpretations. They couldn't all be right. So when we talk about freedom to interpret, are we talking about the freedom to be led in a way that's important for our own personal journey? Or are we talking about there is something that is accurate and other things are not accurate? And accuracy is different than personal leading. So what do we do in a situation that we found ourselves a few years ago, uh, actually five years ago, of being in with two groups, actually there were three, but two, two groups that were opposite to each other, both believed that they were being led by the Spirit. And I, I see this as Paul's problem also. When he's talking about the Judaizers, the Judaizers think they are being led by the Spirit, and the apostles who are going a different direction than the Judaizers think that they're being led by the Spirit. And how does that work? How did it work for Paul? <laughs> well, he had some pretty strong things to say about the Judaizers, as you know from reading Galatians and uh, some other, some and Romans. Yeah. Um, it seems to me that when the Spirit is really at work, and and this is one of my later questions: is how does the Spirit work on our minds and let us be free? It seems to me that when the Spirit is really at work in a person's mind, they are willing to listen to the Spirit. Otherwise, the Spirit isn't working on their mind because he doesn't go where he's not invited or really wanted. Um, and then secondly, that person can work on other people's minds and he will. that person will do so only to the extent that 
that person is invited. In other words, they will they will influence other people, and I think the word influence is the best word to describe the work of the Holy Spirit. I don't think He deprives us of His of our freedom. I think He seeks to influence us, and He expects us to grant other people the same freedom that He grants us to say yes or no. But a freedom to say yes or no to something that's true is not quite the same thing as the freedom to identify as true multiple different interpretations. That's true. And that's why I threw in there the question, how did the early Adventists deal with this? They had a lot of controversy when they started out. And my understanding is that they would, instead of just hitting heads at each other, they would go off and pray until they were willing to receive what, where the Spirit was guiding the group as a whole. And yet, Ellen White still said, after they had done all of that, don't ever assume that we have all the truth. Right. <laughs> So, Gene, doesn't yeah. it have to do with um, being careful not just to listen to ourselves, but to verify uh, with the scriptures and our understanding of how God is love and God is freedom. And we have to constantly verify um, those concepts that if he's not, if what we believe isn't based on the scriptures and on God's character, then something's askew and it's not quite accurate. That we, I don't think we can do this on our own interpretation of if we think the Holy Spirit has guided us or lifted the veil. And so many people really, really seem to focus on their interpretations and I would think the early uh, individuals must have also gotten together and constantly tried to check to see if this was scripture and was it following what God's plan is of love and freedom and uh, how things operate. Like, for example, so many Christians had slaves or thought people that were different than were less than human. So they had gone astray from checking on what scriptures and God's plan is and his nature is. Yeah, you, you, I'm going to take off on that, on the slave part. Um, I think I mentioned this last time I was with this class. Uh, Darius Yankovic the seminary uh, did a study of the history of hermeneutics with the abolitionists and slave owners. And he discovered they had two very different hermeneutics. One her the hermeneutic of the slave owners was a key text here and a key text there that they use quite rigidly. And um, the abolitionists used a holistic approach where they used the key texts that had to do with principles, the overarching principles, like uh, in Christ there is no uh, 
male nor female nor bond nor free and so on um as a result you have one group that is is very locked into a rigid way of looking at scripture versus a group that is in the spirit of freedom looking at the holistic overarching principles of how to interpret scripture because um, one thing i would like to say in this response to vicky's comments um the, the bible is literature it is not math <laughs> <laughs> yeah and you weren't here gene the day i think that uh um, what was what was the wife? Jim Hayward. Shonda. Uh, Jim Hayward's wife. Shondell Hudson. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Anyway, Jean, what she had worked out, and I think she's a mathematician. I gathered. Yes. Is is concentric circles? The smallest circle in the middle was math, and she said math is the only area where you can be, where you can have truth and absolute proof of the truth <laughs> the next bigger circle was science <clears throat> and science doesn't have as as confident uh proof but more than many and uh and science also is just looking at facts but she said neither math nor science is talking about meaning and purpose um, they're just talking about proving certain facts and the biggest circle is the humanities, things like religion and philosophy and art and music and all of those. They have a lower threshold for being able to prove, but a higher threshold for meaning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, um, and, and that's one of the things that I have found through the years of teaching, that people who are, who are very unsettled by not having one right answer uh, get very unsettled by scripture when you start using a more a less rigid perception of, of key texting and uh -huh. and um, so forth Bethel and Arnold uh, did you have a comment one of you yeah <clears throat> my question was <clears throat> sometimes when the spirit tells us something uh, and we're testing the spirit. Is this the spirit or is this um, something else? We relate to the corporate um, or even the Bible. And it does not quite fit our perception of the Bible the way we were raised with or what the church teaches. We we um, we determine that it must not be the spirit. So we're using uh, pre-established or or um, we're using corporate to define whether we're hearing the spirit. So it, it takes away from our freedom to actually be guided by the spirit, regardless of how it interferes with our um where we're at gives us the freedom to come up with you know we're following the spirit so my question is does the spirit lead the congregation or lead the corporate 
Or does the spirit lead individuals and the individuals create the corporate? End. That's a good question. Anybody want to respond to that? Yes. Okay. Who said yes? My own experience with uh, systems, which uh, working with military and uh, governments through the years, is um, we have to focus on the individual. Um, our corporate relationship with the church is to support us and to help us with guidance and fellowship and love and understanding and monitoring ways of reaching out and sharing with other people. But th to me, this is an individual issue, not a corporate issue. So the individual has to um, do their due diligence and uh, we're supposed to search diligently for our own decisions and how we stand. Not, not rely on a corporate leadership. I think so much of our tendency is to look for the leadership in the church to tell us how it should be or the government or like, for example, now people are criticizing and I'm not supporting or criticizing. I'm just suggesting that people are criticizing the president because he's not making everything okay. He's not doing the right things to make it all okay. Where on an individual basis, you see people gathering without their mask and so forth. It's a simplistic sort of example, but you, you see that how people are waiting for the corporate to tell them what to do and what to think and believe. Chantal, you've been waiting for a while. Yeah, so I wanted to maybe start with the math thing, which is to say that um, a, a big part of what allows us to agree on what truth is in math is when we all agree on what our initial assumptions or axioms are. So if we all agree that, you know, the world is flat, then we can all agree on the results of Euclidean geometry. But if I don't agree with those assumptions, then that takes me down another path to understanding spherical geometry where the rules don't always agree with each other. Um, so for example, the number of uh, degrees in a triangle, we know add, add up to 180 degrees, but that's not true in spherical geometry. So if we have different assumptions. We also have conjectures where someone can say, okay, I think this is true. And someone else can say, well, I don't agree with you. I think this is true. Um, and what happens is at some point, somebody has to be able to prove. <laughs> um, otherwise, those two thoughts can kind of exist until we come to a resolution. So a lot of us are probably familiar with that story about the, the blind men describing an elephant. Yeah. Right. One says, oh, it's, you know, thin like a rope. And the other one, it's, you know, oh, it's more like a, a tree. Um, we all have our individual experiences, which allow us to see a part of, you know, this world and, and uh, just get a glimpse of some, some truth. Right. 
but it doesn't necessarily mesh with someone else's because we're coming at it from different perspectives. Um, and I think freedom means allowing people to um, acknowledge that someone else doesn't have the same experience that I do and that just because their experience doesn't agree with and results in the same interpretation as mine doesn't mean that there's not truth in it and that it's not valid. Yes, and the end of that poem and story was, and so the men of Hindustan argued loud and long, each of them was partly right and all of them were wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there you go, freedom. Uh, Lyndon. Um, I, I was, I've been thinking um, that we've been talking about um, uh, testing the spirit, um, but uh, uh, all of us, when we are reading scripture or um, trying to interpret things, um, have, you know, we're thinking to ourselves, and, um, and we are you know, maybe having a running commentary inside of us that is trying to interpret what we're reading. Maybe I'm giving you too much information about myself, but um, uh, in in doing this, are we are are we listening to this running commentary, this this in this individual interpretation as spirit, the spirit, or <clears throat> Are we, um, are we uh, just listening to our self-talk? Um, are we, um, when we listen to, say this, going back to this story of this youth pastor who seemed to have a very overbearing uh, personality and maybe somewhat wrong personality, uh, misinterpretation. Um, uh, was he listening to himself talk and and interpreting things without listening to the spirit, or uh, you know how how did that error creep in to his presentation and the um, students not be able to detect that? Um, what what how are we to detect that? That's not that's not um, that's more of an individual thing, I think, than a corporate. Although, I I uh, think during the Salem witch trials, the corporate actually went awry for a while. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to respond to that a little bit. Um, it was actually a week of prayer speaker outside of the college that wasn't the youth master that that was were telling these stories. He didn't seem dogmatic. He he was just telling stories and, and making the most of them, and in a rather bizarre way, making God look like he would he would save you from disaster if you ran in front of a truck. Um, the thing, though, that I would like to relate this to back to your following the inner voices. The inner voices for me, and this is my own experience. Uh, usually tell me the same things they've always told me. 
where I sense the spirit working is when I'm led to ask questions. And from those questions, then I have to do research and, and try to find out what the truth is. And, and I, I really believe we need to understand the work of the Holy Spirit in Bible reading. The Holy Spirit will not dictate to us what, how to interpret the Bible. He will only present and ultimately influence or seek to influence, possibly by a dialogue we're not even conscious of, where we see something we haven't seen before or where we uh, find a question that just really is a burning question that we have to answer. Um, I think that is how the Holy Spirit works. But I don't think he's going to sit there and tell us dogmatically how to interpret the text. I don't think that's how he works. I think he is the spirit of freedom. Judy Ness? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I realize I'm speaking up in front of psychiatrists, but having worked much of my career as a psychiatric social worker and working with people who often had quite a lot of hallucinations and delusions, which to the person are very, very real, and they often interpret these as the Holy Spirit's guidance, especially if they're religious people. So I have in the past had patients tell me they are pregnant with Michael Jackson's babies, and they know that God wants this because Michael Jackson is going to, you know, be like God and take over the world. And they see this as very much the Holy Spirit's guidance. And it's like, that's one of those things where, where how, how do we know that's not the Spirit's guidance when they are very certain? So I am used to working with people who are sure that something that they're thinking is actually true. So through my career, I've learned to be a little bit um, cautious with self-talk um, and kind of like what Lyndon was saying too about self-talk. So as a counselor, I use a lot of cognitive behavior therapy where we work a lot with people on identifying what was the thought that you had about this. So it's not unusual for a student to come to me and say, I failed, you know, my, my history of Western art class. I'm a total loser. I can't do college. I'm never going to be successful with this. God hasn't called me to do college. I need to drop out. So we will often work through a thing where we identify those thoughts and then we ask, so is that really true? How true is it? What are some other things that could be possibilities? You didn't do well in this class. Maybe you might need to study differently. Maybe a different major might be helpful for you. So we often work with those areas of is it really true? And one of the things we often apply with stuff like this is, is this effective or helpful? Does this self-talk or this belief or this interpretation help us to grow? Does it help us to do the things that God would actually want us to do? 
Does it help us to cope more effectively? Or is it getting us into trouble? And so actually when we read scripture and when we pray, I find myself applying those same things. Is this interpretation actually helping me in the direction of what God would want me to do or believe? Or is this interpretation making me less like Jesus demonstrated in his ministry? And so I guess over the years, I've gotten more and more skeptical, I guess, because I think we make interpretations or we have spiritual experiences that can be based on what we already think or what we already feel or what we already want to do. And so over time, I've gotten more and more cautious with immediately believing something, I think, and more thinking, okay, I need to spend some time, I like what you said, Jean, doing the research, looking at what's the background of these verses, what does God really want from us here? I've gotten more skeptical with my inner dialogue. <laughs> Thank you, Judy. Katrina? Um, you go first. I just wanted to say that um, throughout history, Scripture has been experienced in community. People didn't have the ability to just sit down and read the Scripture or read the Bible uh, and it was also an oral history. The people would listen to it. The Hebrew scriptures are designed to be listened to. And if we take that today, what does that mean today? Today we've got literally hundreds, if not thousands, of denominations of people with all oh, their own private interpretations or going off this way, going off that way. How can we look back to the scripture and how it was meant to be received in communities and then apply that to today because it ties in very much with the identity of the community and also what is relevant to that time. So if today, uh, what if we all came together and read the scriptures but also reflected on how God has been leading us, what miracles has God been doing in our community and celebrating that, to me, that is also in the spirit of the scriptures, which is an oral history that is designed to be heard and understood in community. And I think all of these uh, issues we have about all these differences uh, would be greatly helped if we understood the community nature of the scriptures. Thank you. Did, did you have a comment too? Uh, yeah, I do. Um, there are a couple of things that building off of something Ed had mentioned earlier. Um, one has to do with, I think as far as in my own life and in, and also when I look at others who say that they have heard something that the Holy Spirit is leading them in, in a certain direction, that one of the, the measures perhaps of being able to tell how how relatively likely that is or isn't would be looking for the, the the fruit of the spirit in my own life and in the life of whoever it is that's speaking. Um, if I'm if I don't have any of the 
you know, the love and peace and joy and other uh, fruit of the spirit in my own life, then the voice that I'm hearing may well not be the Holy Spirit. Um, but to the to the greater extent that these are present in my life, then that makes it more likely that what I'm listening and following is indeed actually what the Holy Spirit is is having to say. And then kind of along those same lines, that when we get into the areas where there are two or more groups that are at odds with each other over a particular uh, interpretation, that one of the guides I've looked at is just, then, well, how do these different groups treat each other? Uh, I think ultimately God is more interested in how we treat each other than whether or not we have our doctrinal ducks in a row. Um, and so if one group is just beating down on the other saying you're wrong and you're, you're going to hell and whatever, and the other group is acting in a more loving manner, I would rather be aligned with that group than than the other, just based than the hateful group, just based off of that, um, and uh, alone. And my guess is that the Holy Spirit is probably the Holy Spirit more. And kind of along the same lines, trying to figure out whether that voice is the Holy Spirit. Is that you know God when He speaks to us, He's always going to be uplifting, redemptive, so on. If, the, if that voice is telling you you're a failure, you're never going to make it, you're doing you know, whatever, did it again, you're just might as well give up. That's not God speaking. I want to. I want to take off on that, if I may, um, and point out that in Second Corinthians, where this this freedom passage is, that the goal of that passage is in found in verse eighteen, which follows verse seventeen. And all of us with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. And, and I would like to echo what David was saying by suggesting that um, it's that whatever interpretation we have from Scripture, it's only meaningful and it's only relevant if it has led us to become more loving and more considerate and more Christ-like people, who we actually see the glory of God and in terms of the fruit of the spirit. Uh, because I think that's where Paul is heading, that the veil uh, that's over their faces is the hardening of their hearts and, and minds and making them rigid and, and demanding and coercive and, and so on, dictatorial. Um, but the real glory, if we take that veil off, the real glory of God is his character, according to Exodus 33 and 34. And that by beholding that, we become transformed to become people who, uh, like the Holy Spirit, present things and leave it to the other people to decide whether or not uh, they think that is right. Uh, Willie, I accidentally muted you, but if you'll unmute, you've been waiting quite a while. That's okay. Um, uh, so I, um, I want to respond to the, um, uh, I think it's question number 11, about the, uh, the Founding Fathers and separation of church and state. Um, and I've, just, I've been sitting here this whole time um, trying to think about some kind of scriptural hermeneutic that leads to... Um, uh, to um, separation of church and state and um, 
uh, disestablishment of religion in American history, and I can't think of one. Um, I, I think mainly that comes from um, uh, from the Enlightenment, um, and well, it comes from the Enlightenment, and it comes from the, uh, the political exigency of um, of just the fact that if you were going to establish a uh, a church in the U.S. Um, like in you know, 1776, 1783, um, uh, what would it be? Because um, there was no, um, there, there was no dominant um, religion. Um, and uh, so uh, another thing um, that, that I want to point out, I don't know if this is helpful or not, but just something that, I've, um, uh, that I think is, um, is interesting is that the, um, so we, we all know about um, uh, the, the First Amendment of the Constitution talks about um, uh, Congress shall make no law um, respecting the establishment of religion and, and you, know, um, you know, freedom of speech, all that. Um, and that's actually just, uh, just Congress. So originally separation of church and state was just separation of church and um, the, the, the federal government. Um, and so into the 19th century, a number of states had established churches on the state level. Um, so the churches, so the, the states that had the Anglican church as the official church of those states, that was disestablished like, um, uh, with the revolution because, I mean, that represents the evil empire. Uh, and we, we don't want any of that anymore. Um, but into... Um, um, into the 19th century, uh, a number of New England states had um, um, had established churches, uh, congregational, and, um, mainly congregational. Um, uh, Massachusetts was the last one to disestablish the church in, uh, I want to say, 1833. Um, and that was actually, uh, uh, that actually turned out to be really great for American religion uh, because uh, it, you know, it removed the church from uh, from government, uh, well, government support, but also government control. Um, and so then, like, I mean, that's the context of the Second Great Awakening. Religion just explodes in, in America, um, uh, helped by disestablishment. Um, so I know that the great um, uh, Second Great Awakening uh, preacher, um, uh, Lyman Beecher, was initially opposed to disestablishment of the church. Um, he's like, this, this is a really bad day. I can't believe this has happened. Uh, but then once he realizes how good it is for, um, for America, he's like, no, that, that actually this was, uh, this was great. So um, um, th there, there may have been uh, people who were in favor, like um, uh, religious leaders who were in favor of disestablishment. Um, I, uh, well, I mean, there, there definitely were. The, the, the Baptists wanted disestablishment in, in, in states where they were not the, the dominant religion. So, um, uh, yeah, so minority religions, like minority denominations, wanted disestablishment. Um, but it was the, um, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know of a scriptural hermeneutic uh, that, that led to that. Um, but, of course, it was very advantageous to uh, American religion, ultimately. Yeah, you know, I, I agree with you, Willie, that uh, you can't find a scriptural hermeneutic, particularly with James, uh, with, uh, James Madison and Thomas Jefferson uh, in Virginia. Um, but I was thinking back, clear back to Roger Williams' 
And Roger Williams does seem to have a hermeneutic. It's a more principled one. It's kind of like what the abolitionists used. Uh, and, but he does it in a more general way, taking the world as, as the state and the church as you know, the spiritual realm um, and saying that if they merge uh, and, and the state controls the church or the church controls the state, and it usually works both ways, um, that that was the church becoming the world. And uh, I, I, see, I see scriptural influence, at least, on Roger Williams, but I, I don't know that I would as much on James Madison and Thomas Jefferson. Okay, interesting. Um, we've got several people lined up here. Let's go Dick Osborne and then Leon and then Greg Schneider. It'd be interesting for me to comment on that topic because my master's thesis was on the establishment of religious freedom in Virginia. But I'd like you, Gene, to go back to uh, question number four. Um, it seems like um, the Holy Spirit working uh, is better on an individual way than on a corporate sense. This question about if we uh, sat down and prayed that the Holy Spirit would help us on the issue of women's ordination. Uh, I have to admit that I have, you know, been in many church meetings, general conference, union everywhere. And before a big controversial decision is made, there is somebody that always gets up and says, let's pray about this. And often a little song is sung. And um, if you're in a larger group, you can pray for 10 or 15 minutes. If you have five or six pastors, you can understand what that means. And then everybody gets up and votes exactly the way they were going to vote before that took place. I have to admit that I never once changed my mind on how I was going to vote based on that prayer and asking the Holy Spirit to come in. Um, I came to the conclusion on this issue that culture overpowered um, the Holy Spirit most of the time, <laughs> because perhaps I thought the Holy Spirit wanted a certain vote to happen. So that was perhaps my arrogance. But it seemed to me that culture uh, is so powerful that it even can overwhelm uh, our religious convictions. When I was at a GC session sitting there before these women's ordination votes, and you'd look at a delegation of several hundred from another part of the country, part of the culture being that you do what the leader tells you to do, and basically voting the way the president of the division would want you to vote, or setting up a thing where you wouldn't allow uh, the balloting that had been set up that was going to be very private uh, the last time this would happen. So your comment, Gene, on the role of culture, I think we could go another direction with race as well. I think that's a very powerful ingredient that can overcome a lot of other ways of viewing things. But your uh, comment on the relationship between culture and the Holy Spirit in terms of how we actually as a corporate body make our decisions. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think anything can override the Holy Spirit. And, and particularly, if we as a church are used to just making up our own mind and not learning, and I, I have to use this cautiously, uh, learning how to listen to the Holy Spirit. By that, I mean not having an open mind to go a different direction than we were planning to go. Uh, by because we actually can uh, self-criticize 
and can re rethink what we're doing and, and what the effects of that might be. Um, when we're not ready to read the Bible with the idea that we don't have all the truth and we don't um, aren't able to uh, question our own hypothesis and our own assumptions, uh, I don't think the Holy Spirit can do a whole lot for us. And, and when the whole culture adopts that kind of mentality, um, certainly it's, it's much harder. Though I do think, and, and this, this I think relates to a history of, of movements like Martin Luther uh, and the Reformation, uh, Anabaptists and, and so on. When people, uh, an individual, allows the Holy Spirit to turn their mind in a different direction and they rethink the Bible and they re-see it in a totally different light and then they present that, they stir the pot. Uh, it, it's, it, the result is not everybody suddenly becoming unified. The result is quite the opposite. It's like Jesus said, bringing the sword. Uh, but it brings about a, a ability of the Holy Spirit to work in ways that he wasn't able to before. I was uh, asked to do a worship at uh, an Atlantic Union College big constituency meeting once, big decisions being made. And I began to wonder, how does, the, um, how does a group come to a consensus on what God's will is? So I went to Paul Gordon, who was then the head of the White Estate, and said, can you think of any examples of where Ellen White spoke about or wrote about this particular topic? He thought a while, and he remembered a worship that she had given before one of the biggest general conference sessions, and somebody had transcribed the sermon, and it had never been published, and so I went down, and I was able to look at it, and in that, um, she had a number of principles, but one of the things that most interested me was that Ellen White warned against too much prayer, and she, in this sermon that was transcribed by someone in the audience, said that too much prayer can lead to sentimental and emotional decisions especially in a large group setting. So I think, Gene, your emphasis on individuals seeking the Holy Spirit is perhaps more important than uh, big group prayers and trying to come to consensus as a group compared to the individual, which I think you've been stressing recently. Thank you. You know, Leon, I told you you were next, but I see someone that I've been ignoring because I didn't, I wasn't interpreting the signals right. So Floyd Phillips, I think you've been wanting to speak for a while. Yeah, I have a question. I, I was really, um, I've always been impressed by the description of the early Adventists coming together, trying to find truth, having very different opinions and the way they handled that. And what it seems to me is that maybe a, a large part of our problem of ever achieving what we think is unity has to do with what we're looking for. Because if the early Adventist pioneers, when they met in barns and homes and things to try to figure out what was going on, and make sense out of the disappointment and all of that, if their primary goal had been what seems to be our goal today, and that is to come up with the right answer, I don't know that we would even have a church today. But 
according to their actions, it appears that they were, they had a higher priority for unity of spirit than they did on having uniformity of doctrine. And by what I've heard for quite a long period of time, there were very diverse beliefs of leaders and members in the church, for instance, about the Trinity, about a number of doctrines, and they were very tolerated. They did not become divisive issues. People were allowed to think differently about these things, but their top priority was, was love one another at any cost. And it seems like that has completely reversed today. It's, it's, so if we're looking for how do you hear the Spirit, are we asking for the Spirit to give us the right answer? Or are we asking for the Spirit of freedom to allow the Spirit to move in the uniqueness and diversity of people who have completely different ways of even arriving at quotes truth uh, is is there a tension there between those i would like to propose a, an additional word i don't know that we're as a church we tend to want to find the right answer i think what we want the holy spirit to do is give us the power to control <laughs> And, and that, that really, that right answer is an adjunct to being able to control. Control what, Gene? Control the church. Control the members. Yeah. Okay. Leon? Um, yeah, very, very impressed with all the comments. All I wanted to add is this is a dynamic process. Individual, Understanding God, because the scope of the Bible, the purpose of the Bible and understanding Bible is understanding God. The, throughout my life, the way I understand God is one. Uh, Holy Spirit is only a way of God's working with individuals and communities, individual and congregation or church, if you want. Throughout the history, all this tension and dynamic work. Uh, we cannot idealize too much Adventist history or history in general if we want to understand how God works with the individual, with the community. Uh, God limits himself to work with the human limitations. I am... If I am open, and uh, unity of spirit was mentioned uh, several times, and that is the point, if I am open to understand God's working with me as an individual and God using the community for the benefit of the community, I am open to take a step back and see the bigger picture. Otherwise, community doesn't matter if it is... Um, um, church or uh, any human institution will use authority. Um, question number four, if the entire SDA church decided to prayerfully ask, they did that as a corporate, exactly. but they didn't change their minds. Why? We are individuals. 
thinking from the individual perspective, not for the benefit of community or God's perspective. And how we see God is how we decide what truth is. How we perceive God's character, God's intentions, is how we try to impose our perspective. If I see God as hierarchy, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then the woman, who is the Holy Spirit, usually in larger acceptance, should be the third. So she doesn't have a, a place in uh, ordination. <laughs> Forgive me for, for sarcasm. But the point is, these dynamics uh, overlaps with my maturity as a human being. If I want to understand God and uh, give God room to create me, recreate me in his image, his image includes relationships. He uses me for the community. The community is used to help individuals, participants. If the freedom is respected, we try to find that healthy tension of growth. If not, I will impose my authority if, if it happens that I am the president and I'll take the vote or I'll influence the vote in such a way that it will be my way because that is my personal conviction that God spoke to me but didn't give you the freedom to speak through you. So what I understand from uh, very well-chosen passages, but in context, freedom of how culture influences me, and I cannot deny that, how my level of maturity, emotional, spiritual, relational, how well I see the force of the community coming together. From the American history, because it's 4th of July, it's not true that separation of state and church came as a spiritual maturity. It came from the lessons of history. Most of the participants were not really um, religious people oriented to understand how God thinks society in general. They're even more distancing themselves from a particular religious beliefs. They're more or less uh, universalists or uh, the same during the Reformation. Uh, sola Scriptura, Prima Scriptura, uh, or whatever you want to say came out of the political, social, societal struggle. It was not imposed by a religion per se. Yes, Luther came out of understanding salvation as a grace of God not imparted by the church, and that drove, and it was a magnet for all the princes to impose their own power. So, uh, to conclude, how can we come together as a community, as a church, to understand God, his freedom, individual freedom, to bring freedom to the community and growth, is to see my role as a part of the whole. Yes, I, I decide for myself. By the way, Jim, um, I was a young pastor and somebody came to me and said, God showed me that you have to marry me. Uh, thank God I had the presence of the Spirit to say, God has to show me that. 
individual is individual. You have to decide for yourself. If I am able to open my mind to see things from God's perspective, I will grow. And two years from now, I'll think differently about some things that 10 years I was militant about. Thank you, Leon. Uh, I think Greg is going to have our last comment here. Wow. Um, I'm actually going to diverge from what I had on my mind and pick up on, on some of the themes I heard from Leon. I think it is important to recognize that the separation of church and state as we knew and as we come, came to feel our way into it in the American experiment has a deep history of things like the 30 years war and the peace of Westphalia and the just utter exhaustion of trying to force religious definitions uh, by way of armies, uh, the exhaustion from the bloodshed. Um, and as Willie reminded us some time ago, uh, if you're going to establish a religion in the United States or the, in the fledgling United States, which would it be? There was no majority that was going to impose it. Uh, so the separation of church and state um, was, was something even uh, the most ardent religionists reluctantly agreed to because there was, there was no better option to come up with. Um, what is interesting about the Second Great Awakening that, uh, that Willie spoke of is that the people in the Second Great Awakening uh, thought they had the solution to bringing about unity when you couldn't impose it from above. You could build it from below with the revival and with revival consciousness and with meetings of groups of people who got together to weep and to pray and, and to shout. Uh, and I was thinking what, what uh, 1 Corinthians 3.17 would mean to them, what it, I think, did mean to them, that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. To them, that would have meant the liberty of having a preacher who could make them cry and make them shout and lift the individual into, out of him or herself into a kind of unity in the spirit. And that was the promise of American Protestantism in the Second Great Awakening, that we were going to bring unity to the nation by way of the revival. Uh, it didn't work. Uh, we've had to find other ways to form our institutions and build communities, although there are still people who think the revival might be an answer. Um, I think it's important to understand that when we talk about the, the big generalities we've been using, the big concepts we've been using today, corporate versus individual, there's a variety of kinds of social life. There's bureaucratic corporate, uh, managerial corporate kind of thing. There is the, the spirit of the local community. And then there's that special spirit we get in kind of Protestant revival and shared testimony and those sorts of things. Lots of different ways of being together. And in the midst of all that, it's important to recognize that our other great concept that we've been talking about, the individual, the idea of the individual that we've been been taking for granted in the conversation this morning is itself a social contract. Uh, pardon me, a social construct. Um, 
you can go to lots of places on the earth. Uh, anthropologists have done it uh, and tried to speak in terms of categories of individual versus group and inviting only confusion because other cultures, other times and places do not recognize that subjective, uh, self-contained, isolated consciousness that we call the individual. Um, we invented the individual, even as we invented the state uh, and the denomination and a lot of these various forms uh, of social life. And I think I'll stop there. All right, thank you. Um, I'm going to hand it off to Jean for a final con uh, comment, if she wishes, and a benediction. Before I do, let me say that um, Greg will actually be teaching next week. Um, he's going to be following up on Leon's presentation, where we got into talking about demon possession. And uh, Nancy on asked that maybe Greg could give us some more about demon possession. So that will be our exciting topic for next week. Um, Jean, I think, uh, so uh, please uh, finish up for us. Thank okay, you. so this is not going to be a full-fledged conclusion. I've, I've already given some conclusions as we've gone through. But I uh, wanted to point out, again, the net result of a Holy Spirit of freedom who doesn't use coercion and doesn't dictate to us what we are to, how we ought to read the Bible, but who opens our minds, influences, or seeks to do that, and it doesn't go where he's not wanted. Um, the net result of that is that we should extend that kind of freedom and means of persuasion of other people where we, we don't seek to dictate to them, but we we uh, invite them to look at something. Um, Ellen White had quite a bit to say about people who were dogmatic in meetings, trying to convince or trying to coerce everyone to their wagon. She said that she wanted to flee the place because of the spirit of lack of freedom. Uh, and, so I, I think on this uh, 4th of July, it's important to realize that uh, ultimately, if we have the Spirit of God, we will treat other people with respect, their, their ideas with respect, and we will uh, give them the same freedom that the Holy Spirit gives us. Let's pray. Dear God, we ask that uh, we might not take lightly the Holy Spirit, that we will ask for his guidance. But when we do, we know that he will not uh, use force in any way to try to coerce us to his particular view, but that he will invite us uh, to reason, to study, to qu ask questions, uh, and to find answers. We ask that we will allow him to transform us so that we become more like Jesus in the way we treat one another. In his name, amen.